Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest, a podcast on Reformation history and theology. And um, James and I are here today. Oh, and just a reminder um, for our listeners, I haven't put a reminder out in a while, but um, please uh, give us a rating on whatever plat- streaming platform that you listen to us on. Give us a rating if it allows you to do ratings and reviews. We would appreciate that too. Uh, the more feedback we get, the more the algorithms may put us out to more people, and we uh, importantly, just like hearing back from people and what your thoughts are on the show are are on about the show. So, uh, and another announcement: uh, the Spotify issue has been fixed. So, um, we uh, ha- we were having issues with our episodes um, being released on Spotify, uh, not on uh, other platforms. Um, there, but on Spotify, uh, there was about two months. The last two months of our episodes haven't been on there, but now they are. So. Uh, that's good news. And so um, thanks to the people at Spotify I talked with for fixing that. So, And um, James, uh, as I said, is here with me today. Uh, we're talking about Calvin and the law. And I think a lot of our discussion will be around uh, a concept called the third use of the law, which we'll get to in a little bit, but it'll also explain describing what the first and second use of the law is. And I guess this, you know, sometimes, you know, people may uh, be first-time listeners of the podcast at all, and, um, you know, uh, may, might just want to be, it's always good to maybe just have a re- overall refresher, uh, just to be, just to, not to be too elementary, but even to define law and gospel here. <laughs> so, and the distinction of law and gospel, which was central to uh, reformational thought, it was um, something Martin Luther, um, it was his hermeneutic, his interpretive lens of looking at the Bible. Uh, the, the Bible is full of law, God's ex- expectation, and full of gospel, the, the, the promise um, of salvation. So, and, uh, you know, it, in many ways, you could say Luther's theology hinged on this idea. And, um, but it's not original to Luther, you, you could very much argue, and I think very um, in some instances, this is very clear in the earlier history of the church, uh, certain church fathers who speak of of, uh, of law and gospel. And then if you go to Paul's letters, it's very, it's quite clear, um, um, you know, uh, the, the law and gospel distinction, um, especially in writings like Romans. Uh, so, but, but I guess, James, if you want to give us kind of give us kind of the crash course for each law and then gospel. And then from from there, um, I'll I'll get into the what the uses are. Uh, but uh, you know, if you want to do us the honor of a sure, because because I know you're a big law and gospel guy. We were having a phone off the air phone conversation earlier where you brought you you brought this up, or we were talking about this. So. Yeah, so so I think I think the distinction is is um, paramount 
in Christian theology, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important for us as um, as Protestants to recognize, specifically as Protestants, um, to recognize that this is our native hermeneutic. This is the the way that we naturally look at the scriptures through the lens of law and gospel. Luther, I think it was Luther, uh, talked about law and gospel, and certainly Walther um, talks about law and gospel as a distinguishing law and gospel um, as an art, not a science necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's not something where you can clearly define boundaries in every way, shape, and form so that something can always be law and never be gospel or other way around. Um, but generally speaking, when you see commands in Scripture, that is law because it is it is proclaiming to you God's um, um, demand upon you and upon your uh, behavior and upon your life. So it's not just the 613 laws in the five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, but it is also anywhere else in Scripture where you see God issuing an imperative to his people. It could be the prophets, could be Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a lot of law there. Um, so when God issues that demand, um, that demand comes across as telling you what you are to do. Um, and how you are to live. Um, And of course, that uh, has a particular way upon the life of the believer, uh, or even the unbeliever, because the the unbeliever first comes to uh, know, uh, first comes to know God through the law. That's the first way of understanding things. Uh, And then the gospel is, um, is when, when God speaks to us in the declarative, um, when God speaks to us in the indicative and where God issues promises. So when we hear good news, the, um, the, the thing that we, like when we hear the word gospel, the word gospel means good news. And when we hear good news, good news is not telling us something to do. Good news is declaring that something has already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that is, a necessary way of viewing the gospel because uh, the gospel is supposed to free us from the power of sin and death. If we are told that we have to do something and that the gospel is ultimately contingent upon us doing something, then it is no longer good news and it really only can just kill us. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, it's a it's a lifelong endeavor to distinguish between law and gospel. It's something that's imperative, um, if you'll pardon the legal language um, for for us as Christians, because um, I've seen it in my own pastoral context, and I'm sure you have Drew too. Where if people are fed a steady diet of imperatives, of exhortation, of paranesis, of uh, only law, um, it ends up taking them in one of two directions. Um, either to self-righteousness, which we all have a tendency toward, or to despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, neither of those two directions are what God intends for us when we hear his word. That's why he has his two words, law and gospel. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that was well put. And um, of course, as I said, law and gospel distinction um, is 
you know, you mentioned Luther, you mentioned, you know, CFW Walter even, because I know you've read a lot, you've read a lot of Walter. I haven't really read a lot of him, but I know um, he, he is uh, one of the, you know, if you were to have a Mount Rushmore of Lutheran theologians, I've heard uh, Walter would be on there, I guess. So he would be um, on there for the LCMS to be sure. Um, especially even LCMS, uh, you know, um, Missouri Synod Lutherans or more conservative Lutherans would, would put him on on their Rushmore, I would I would say, yeah. But um you know, the it's not it's also in Calvin. And of course, this was actually um, you know, even meaning to to dive back into the institutes. And we did our first episode on Calvin, and it was on Calvin and the Eucharist. That was probably about probably three months ago now. So this is kind of a, a long delayed return. But um we we were gonna talk about Calvin and the law. And uh, based on some of our conversations leading up to this, uh, it sounds like James, you're um, uh, you're this is a an aspect of Calvin you find frustrating. Uh, I do want to just kind of review what these uh three uses are, yep. and um, when I say you, you know, James just described the law and and what we mean by when we say the law um the the uh the imperatives um that are found throughout scripture so th the law has a has a certain it's it's a good thing though because it has it, it's it, it's god uses the law in um several in several in several ways and for the, I'm just going to quote right from, there's there's a similar version of the three ways God uses the law in Lutheran theology, in the formula of Concord, which we'll get to later. Um, there's a great Lutheran debate over whether, whether there's two uses or three uses. I think it'll be worth um, getting into that too. But, what we're, but since we're, you know, we wanted to get back into Calvin, this is from uh, the second book, seventh chapter. Uh, where Calvin really lays out the law. He says, for, for Calvin, he, the first use of the law um, is what you what um, is often called the punitive use, um, the law being like a mirror. Um, thinking of it as you see yourself in the mirror and you see your faults and you see the bads you have done, right? Uh, to quote Calvin, um, but after he is compelled to weigh his life in the scales of the law, laying aside all that presumption of fictitious righteousness, he discovers that he is a long way from holiness as and is in fact teeming with a multitude of vices with which he previously thought himself undefiled, unquote. Um, Calvin draws upon St. Augustine, who says the usefulness of the law, and remember Augustine uh, lives a, a millennia, millennium before the reformers but even augustine sees this use of the law that the the law the usefulness of the law augustine says lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace which is in christ i really that sentence by august augustine really sums it up and and this again this use of the law i mean um you see it in Reformed theologians and Lutheran theologians, and you see it here with Calvin right, right, right from his own hand, and you see uh, basically that same understanding of this punitive use of the law in Luther, the 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 idea of that um, 
you are basically woken up to the fact of of your um, all your presumption is taken away because you are um you see plain as day um you know you're convicted um and you see plain as day uh your infirmity so um any so that's the first use i could continue i could get into the other two or any comment on that james of the first use of the law um yeah according to calvin first use of the law um one of the things that i find fascinating is um in the institutes especially in the ford lewis battles translation from like the 50s or 60s something like that yeah and that's the edition i just quoted from for listeners and that's the edition i recommended on our first episode on calvin because it's really the i'd say the best most best translated critical edition you could say or oh um, yeah you know, Un undeniably yeah it's, it, been it's the like the standard it's like the cold wing or uh, but you know book of concord if you're gonna yeah, yeah i would say it's right well and, and the other thing is that the uh the the standard before ford lewis battles uh was henry beveridge from the 1800s and mm -hmm. um in the introduction to the institute's battles um not necessarily unself-servingly um here's tears that translation up quite a bit um for for how it was handled and treated and whatnot i mean he doesn't say it's you know the worst thing in the world but he basically says i'm going to give you something that i think is better in effect mm, yeah um so uh in in the institutes um when we get into book two chapter seven which is where he starts to go through the negative and positive aspects of the ten commandments mm -hmm um battles talks about in one of the footnotes how calvin understands the positive evaluation of the law he says for calvin a positive evaluation of the law allows the third use to be the principal one while for luther the condemning function is the chief one hmm. calvin regards the condemning function as accidental to its true purpose and battles quotes from uh calvin's commentary on 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and from Romans 7, 10 through 11. And it says, Calvin habitually asserts that the law has validity only as it is related to Christ. So all that is to say that for Calvin, what Lutherans would call the third use of the law, Calvin understands as the primary use. What Lutherans would call the second use of the law, which is the mirror, the the condemning function the the punitive the, yeah punitive, as we're calling it yeah yeah the punitive mm -hmm. use of the law um is accidental but he means accidental in the um in the thomist sense that it is not part of the essence of the law but is simply something that is an accident not like uh-oh this shouldn't have happened but like it's not the essence of the law, but kind of a part of the law's outworking. Is that is that how you would describe it? I would. Well, I mean, it's been. I'd have to brush up on my Thomistic um, philosophy of accident, but yeah, it's not like a oops, I dropped a gla my glass of water on the floor and it broke. I mean, I had an accident. But it's it's a the philosophical sense of not not something um, something that's not um, it, it's not it's not the essence of the thing, but it's something that um 
I mean, I think you described it. <laughs> I, mean, I won't try to describe it in a better way. I think you did it fine. But and I think, um, which is kind of related to how we use X. It's not the same thing, but it's kind of related in a way. You could make the analogy because, um, you know, if I break something, that that thing is not supposed to be broken, but it it is. Um, it's just what ends up happening. And and I think um, I, I find myself. I'll I'll admit to you, James. I I don't I find myself. Um, struggling to disagree with Calvin there. I, I think if you look at it in the sense of, you know, God's law brings terror, but it brings terror to the sinner. And um, sin sin is, you know, it's, it's, it's against God. And so um, the law uh, shouldn't bring terror, but unfortunately it does because of the entrance of sin. But it shouldn't bring it. It should, it should be something that, um, we delight in and we can't because of uh, the old Adam um, but but it's it's something that is is good in its essence and uh, should bring the opposite of terror but nevertheless it brings terror because of because of this because of the the sin that's how sinners receive it they're terrified they see the weight of it you know as we just described the definition of, of it so I don't know what do you think of that so so, so... I see your point. What I would say is um, that argument for me hinges upon the question of, is the law of God eternal? So if the law of God is eternal, then it predates the fall, right? Mm -hmm. And it postdates regeneration, in effect. Mm -hmm. But what we see in Paul is that Christ is the telos, the goal, the end of the law. So the law has an end date. So by its very nature, it's not eternal. And we see the law come in only when, um, I mean, perhaps you could argue that the law comes in when God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we see the law in its punitive function and and uh, maybe I'm making your point for you, but we see the <laughs> law in its punitive function. We see the law in its in its full force in the fall. But we don't have any kind of like, for instance, the law involves, especially in the five books of Moses, an entire sacrificial system. Mm -hmm. um, that is um, at the heart of um, keeping the Sabbath holy. Like those are case laws from that, but um, but all of that happens as an outworking of um, the fall, as something that happens after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. So the way I think about it, maybe I'm totally wrong here, but the way I think about it is in the garden, Adam and Eve naturally desired to do the will of God. Um, that was their that was their normative state. Mm -hmm. But the the serpent comes in, tempts Adam and Eve. Disorder comes in when Adam and Eve um, elect to to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and from that moment on, the law really comes in in its full force. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it comes in. It, it comes. It, it's part of this is an epistemological thing because it comes in. It may seem like it's coming in in its full force, but it's coming in in its. I think it's coming in in its full terror from the standpoint now of the sinner. Mm. 
and I think that um, I think the 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 I would say the law is um, eternal pre pre fall um, post eschaton. Even I mean it, it's a it's something primordial that um, is it's it's in the garden. It's um, it's the uh, it's something that is cheerfully done and not like you know begrudgingly obeyed i mean it, it i i think the, the and i think there's you know i think th there's scriptural um you know there's there's theology you can just drive you can bring from scripture to, def to defend the, that um about the eternal eternality of the law i guess um but that would be my position i mean as far as like the in law in now in law in the certain format or are the manifestations of like um the ceremonial laws given during you know the days of the wilderness i mean obviously like those i don't know if those are the essence of the law though i think those were you know those are time bound i would say but i would think i mean the um i'm sitting next to a book that we we're going to get into later because it is luther's uh, dis disputations with the antinomians and it says um um only the title is only the decalogue is eternal and i'm trying try i'm trying to see where that title is taken from uh but i'm pretty sure uh that would be the um yeah uh it casts light on the eschatological validity of the moral law frequently emphasized by um luther i i take that to mean luther would would think the law is eternal too at least the moral law, if you want to break it up by moral ceremonial. So um, I just think, yeah, it's more of a from it's when we're talking about the punitive use of the law, I would say that's something that um, is brought about from the fall. That's not something eternal, but that's that's unfortunately because of the fact of sin now. That's, um, you know, and whether we want to argue that the primary use like Luther would, um, I think there's a good case for that. Um but that's that's that ex, fall would explain the, the why the law functions now that way to us humans. Yeah. Sorry, man. I didn't mean to like shut you down. No, it's like the no, most, this is the most heated uh, episode we've had. No, it's not heated. I'm just thinking. <laughs> um, I know. So, uh, see, listeners, we don't. Uh, James and I have not disagreements, but we have a. Uh, you know, we try to we look at things from different angles sometimes, at least. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah but mean, I'm also fetch, fishing for words. I've had a long day, and I might not be explaining myself the best. So no, you <laughs> are no. clarification if you do if you need to ask. Uh, but you know, no. What what you're saying what you're saying does make a lot of sense. Um, the the way that I tend to think about the law, not to say that um my thoughts are universal, but the way I tend to think about the law is that the law always accuses. Um, that's that great Lutheran phrase, lex semper accusat. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, what, um, what, what, I, what, I, what I think, uh, what I believe, is that really when it comes down to it, on this side of the resurrection, um, the law is always going to accuse because of the fall mm -hmm. so we can we can speculate 
um, and we can build systems of um, theological understanding. But ultimately, when the rubber meets the road, because of the fall and before the resurrection, the way that we really need to think about the law primarily, if not only, is that it is there to accuse. Mm -hmm. Because and I think that's primarily what it ends up doing all the time, practically speaking. Sorry, I cut you off. But... No, no, no. So this is where I think there is a there's a subtle shift between what Calvin is saying and what Luther would be saying. Mm -hmm. I think for Calvin, the third use is for the regenerate, the primary use of the law. And what he calls the first use, what Lutherans call the second use, that takes a back seat. Whereas I think if Luther would argue for a third use, and I think that really is up for debate, although I tend to say probably not, I know many who would, many whom I respect would say that. Um, but uh, Luther would certainly never place a third use of the law above his second use, the punitive use, the theological mm -hmm. use of the law. Because that is always what is going to be in the mind and heart, even of the, the believer, is that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing that I can do to save myself. Mm -hmm. Not when I look at the law, hey, look how good I'm doing. You know, um, that that's not the way that's not the way that it functions. Um, but I don't want to I don't want to preempt what we're what we're uh, going to get into in a minute, I guess. So yeah. I'll probably stop there. Well, I think the punitive use um, is most often um, what how it I think that's what the law does to. That is the biggest effect I think it has on all people. I mean, is whether, you know, they deep down, they know when they, when they, for instance, taking the 10 commandments, when they really look at each one, um, there is the, you know, you know, the, the, it does have the effect that, that they feel the weight because they know that there's, um, one or two that they can, you know, have a vivid memory of transgressing. And so, um, you know, before you, you, they may see that it's a good thing. It's a blue. It's a blueprint for how God desires us to live. But um, they, it doesn't escape from the fact that they're you're first and foremost going to see how. Um, wow, I don't know if I have always lived up to that. And even if like you think you want to live up to it, you will. There will be the um, fear that you won't. With the very right. least. So I think that terror is that terror it brings, you know. Have, have you ever um have you ever watched the TV show American Ninja Warrior? Uh it's been years, but yeah, I mean that's a so there's always this hurdle at the end of <laughs> the run called the warp wall. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um uh, if if I if I'm remembering this and not conflating it with another show, sometimes there is a um there is a shorter side and a taller side, mm -hmm. right? And again, I might be so. So, if our listenership uh, corrects me on this, that's fine. But <laughs> we the, have the metaphor, the metaphor still hopefully will work. Yeah, you know, people want to try the tall side to get up, and and um, it is darn near impossible. But with the law, 
it's not only darn near impossible, it is as if it is 50 feet higher than the tallest warp wall. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at it and you think, I wonder, could I do that? And then you fall down multiple times and realize absolutely not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's somehow objectively or morally wrong. The law is obviously good. It is given mm -hmm. by God. It is his creation design and creation intention. But um, as, as believers, even, we continue to fail to scale that wall because we still are you know, sinful mm -hmm. on this side of the resurrection. That's where the symbol comes in. Right. Um. I want to I'm going to jot a note down because I do want to revisit that point of the the point of the impossibility of keeping all that. And I've I've seen I won't get into the details, but I've seen some social media things lately that seems to offend some certain Christians. Um, and <sighs> right. if if they're, if you're looking at this part of the picture, I can see why you'd be offended. But um, I found something really good after yeah. But I'll get into that later. Let's I mean need to, <laughs> we're talking about these uses of the law. We didn't even go over the other two. Um, so the second right. use, and this is quoting again from 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 Book Two, Chapter Seven of Cal of, of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Um, this is the second use, um, but they are okay. So before I quote, um, I'll just kind of explain it in my own terms best I can. The second use of the law, which would not be again, Luther numbers them differently, but the second use for Calvin would be. Um, Restraining evil, basically, kind of like how governments have um, laws against crimes, right? Um, you know, someone can have a lot of hate in their heart and want to go commit murder. The fact that there's a law against murder is probably going to, you know, I mean, depending on the person, probably going to, there's going to be, there's going to be some deterrence there about whether that person actually goes out and does it. So, and this relates a lot to the second use of this restraining evil, that God's law uh, first use it terrorizes us. Second use it, um, or first use it convicts us, terrorizes us, shows us our short shortcoming. The second use it it uh, through coercion and fear um, stops us from doing evil. Uh -huh. uh, Calvin says, but they are restrained not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being brittled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity. And hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would wantonly have indulged in, unquote. Because right. that's exactly the the you know the the murderer that would if there wasn't a law against it, whether the civil law or you know God's law, right. he would you know do it. So um, and that's that's very insightful because I think a lot of um, you know we're we're talking about like you mentioned self righteousness earlier, you know a lot of the religious leaders that Jesus would get in these confrontations with, they were um, basically their, they, their holy good deeds that they would boast in were external actions only because inside they were depraved still. And that's that, that, you know, that's exactly what um, the, that, that touches at least, I, I think it's related a lot to what Calvin here speaks of that the law, which, you know, these people that Jesus would get in confrontation with these people would they'd at least say that they delight in the law, but um, really it was just um, it, well, one it was their own self self righteousness. But it shows how the law cannot bring 
um, a, a, a real transformation of heart. It can't change you inwardly. It may coerce you and deter you outwardly from 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 acting upon the evil within uh, that we all have. But it's not going to it's not going to save you because it's not going to change who you are inside. So, right. The the yeah. I think the 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 best way that I've heard that put is that the law cannot affect that which it commands. Right. Mm -hmm. So the law can command, but it can't force you to do it. You still are, you know, I, I mean, I think about it like this, you know, I have a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old. And when I tell them something to do, both of them become indignant. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's, that's our natural, that's our nature as fallen human beings is that when we're told something to do, we become indignant. If we know that there's bad enough punishment involved, what we would call, what Lutheran uh, folks would call the first use of the law, the civil use, if there's bad enough punishment, it'll stop you from doing it. doesn't mean you don't mm -hmm. want to do it. just means mm -hmm. you don't like the idea of being punished for it. Right. Uh, the second use is that which convicts the heart. So the outward action is often curbed by the civil use, but the heart is broken and, um, and, and, and conquered by, um, by the the second use of the law the the theological or punitive use of the law because we recognize like oh i i am self-righteous a lot of the time i do want to do things that i know are bad um you know there's that old video uh, from like 10 years ago of that kid who got um i think he got like he was like 10 years old and got pulled over driving uh, his parents car and when he was you know uh interviewed shortly thereafter he said it's fun to do bad things you remember mm -hmm. that i don't but um yeah but that's but I mean, the gravity who's that has worked its way outward <laughs> right right yeah i mean it's it is it is um it, it is that is the the nature of the fallen human being is that we mm -hmm. we all think it's fun to do bad things um right. so uh i don't remember where i was going with that but I'm well. I'm wondering. Well, yeah. Where were you going with that? Because <laughs> I didn't hear you. Gonna, well, it comes to mind. Interrupt and tell me. And, um, okay. Well, I'm conf I'm wondering now whether we could go in one of two directions. We could either go on and get into the third use, or we can spend more time on this twofold use. Because I think I'm with you. I think um, Luther himself. I know this is a Calvin episode. Here we go, jumping back into Luther. But Luther himself. Um, very much as much as I could mind his work, he he doesn't seem to ever endorse what this third use is. He speaks of the laws doing one of two things at all times. The terrorizing we spoke about, um, you know, the punitive use uh, and then um the second being the um the um restraining evil. He said the law does those two things. Um and in doing so um drives us uh drives us to fear but um it that in doing so it, it prepares us for the good news of the gospel right um and so you know i was um i guess i'll go i'll i'll go with this the the when you said earlier that about the impossibility of keeping the law um a lot there's certain christians who you know, a lot of them probably not really well acquainted with 
writings of reformational writings and reformational theology who say, well, no, like the Bible has these laws and it says, do it if you, it doesn't say do it if you can, it says do it, right? Mm -hmm. And, but, and they would tell maybe us that like, we're not, like, we don't take that seriously enough or that, you know, we think it's impossible because it's impossible because God's law is impossible to fulfill, then it doesn't matter or something like that which is not what we're saying and it's actually um and we've talked about this term in past episodes the term antinomian which denotes this position um that says because we are freed from the curse of the law the law absolutely doesn't matter in any way whatsoever it's all the gospel now right law's over so therefore um you know the law you know the laws because it's impossible to do we can um basically you know do you know we have total freedom and you know it that the, it's a mistaken theological position because the law has its proper function that we just talked about luther and, and calvin even though there's areas they disagree on we'll get into that but they they, they held that the law and the gospel are both necessary um, another way they misread us these people talking about and um is if if they don't like they they would think that the they would mistake our reformational theology for that of antinomianism that's what i just mentioned a little bit ago which is false uh because there's a whole back catalog of reformational writings against the antinomian position of which i have a copy here which i'll get into in a sec um of martin luther's uh disputations with them but um there's also they would probably say that we are um because the law is impossible to well we can do whatever the hell we we can do whatever the hell we want and that's a straw man if anything but i i mean that's that's but and that's not that's that's absolutely not what we're saying um either right you know so um there but this there's a book i'd recommend our listeners um it's it's i don't believe it's in luther's works the american version um, I believe it is only, and I could be mistaken, I believe this is only in the Weimar edition, which is in German, but there's a place called Lutheran Press, which does translate some of, which is um, taken taken upon itself, it's not a big name publisher at all, uh, but they have taken upon themselves to find certain uh, works of Luther in German and bring them into English. And there's a really good quote I read, um, which I wish I would have had when I was saw that social media little dispute over um you know that oh you you sola fide christians you you reformation type christians you just think the law is impossible you know you don't care about the law so um so this is the antinomians say we are not obliged to do the impossible the law is impossible therefore we are not obliged to do it this is luther's response it is said improperly that is not rightly and not fittingly that we are obliged to do what is impossible by the law when adam was first created the law was for him not only something possible, but even something enjoyable. He rendered the obedient he rendered the obedience the law that required with all his will and with gladness of heart, and did so perfectly. Yet what now after the fall is impossible is not is so not by the fault of the law, but by our fault. It is not the fault of the one binding, but of the one sinning. Hence this statement the law urges us to do what is impossible needs to be understood fittingly. For if you want to preserve the strict sense of the words, it sounds as if God himself is being accused of burdening us with the impossible law. 
Yet it is sin and Satan who made the possible and the enjoyable law impossible and terrifying who are to be accused. So and that touches a little bit upon our conversation earlier about, you know, how does the law, how does it fall into place with the fall and everything? And um, not that we have to hammer on that anymore, but like it's, it's, it's God isn't burdening us like you know we're not saying that god's burdening us we're saying it's our fault that the law is impossible to do so right Right. um i would say that um that when we think about like who is the one who's using the law right i mean who's in the driver's seat when it comes to the law i would say that god is the one who uses the law not human beings and this plays out i think rubber meeting the road when we see and hear problematic preaching which is basically people in the pulpit saying you absolutely must do this Uh, you know i'm shackling you to this thing that you must do or else kind of thing Mm -hmm. and what that does is it it it, that's where the law ends up um, leading to self-righteousness or to despair Mm -hmm. instead of doing its proper thing which is the law can only kill you. It can't vivify you. The law can only kill you. It can't resurrect you. Like mm-hmm. that's why you need the other word as it were. Right. Um, so, so that's, that's something that I think I, I will say this about what you, about what you're just saying. I'm not nearly as concerned about the question of the goodness of God when it comes to an impossible standard. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because how of how Calvin has influenced my thinking that God being sovereign, anything he does is by nature good because mm-hmm. he is the one who created all things and he has full right of agency over the entire creation. Mm-hmm. So if God gives us something impossible, that doesn't mean we get to say from our small, tiny little vantage point. God, how dare you? What that means for us is that we have to recognize that if God is doing this, God is doing it because he knows it's for our good ultimately. Yeah. So, so that, that's kind of where I'm coming from, especially with regard to that argument that, that happened on social media last week um, that, you know, if the law is impossible, then God's goodness is in question. No, that's actually a very faulty argument. And it's based off of, I think, very faulty thinking in um ultimately in in roman catholic theology is Mm. where we get a lot of that um yeah it's um yeah well and i remember (laughs) i didn't want to i didn't want to get too specific about the debate but yeah because i was actually thinking of another social media thing separate from the one you're talking about but uh it's like been a we're we're being something no it's a recurrence there's something in the air about like let's go after the reformation christians you know, so it was an Anglican I saw, right? It was, I won't get into specific, but but no, I remember because you're what you what you say, though, James, and I think you spoke further. You know, when we talked off air, is that you know, we can't we can't uh, project our ideas or impose our ideas of goodness on God, right? Um, because our our ideas of goodness are flawed, right? right. So, um, and you know, uh, so yeah, I think. Um, but so when it comes to preaching and this, so this is something I'll admit, I've never been able to neatly place into the law gospel framework as much is the idea of the law of love. I guess you could say, like, you know, and there's Paul's exhortations to, to, 
uh, for love. And they always sound, they always sound to me very comforting because it's, you know, he's, he's trying to bring peace often in the discord that's going on. And he talks about the fruits of the spirit and now reckon the importance of reconciliation and how this happens, you know, through, you know, through the, the, through, you know, in his part, the actions of, of, of the community of faith um, and how they deal with each other. So, um, you know, this, like, for instance, today, when I preached, um, you know, I preached on the Corinthians passage and, you know, that the idea of how knowledge puffs up, but, but love builds up mm -hmm. and, um, you know, love builds up because, you know, we have been given the greatest status we could ever hope for that we could ever desire, um, by, by a God who lowered himself, uh, to the lowliest status and did it out of love because love, um, uh, builds up. Um, and, and because, you know, he loved, because he first loved us, um, we love because he first loved us. And so, you know, that we can go into the world and build up rather than tear people down. And so, um, like, for instance, for me, that's something inspiring that doesn't, when I hear that, that doesn't terrorize me. Now, if it's all like vague, you know, go do this, go do that. I mean, I got tired of that kind of preaching, especially you hear so much in, in the mainline churches about just going and doing good in the world, um, you know, that, that becomes, that, 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 that it does become like a heavy law mm -hmm. preaching that, um, because it, it's, it does feel burdensome to always hear that. But I don't know, I think, you know, I think maybe this is a good segue into the third use. I, I think the, you know, the law, it, it, it terrorizes, it, um, it deters us from, from doing the evil we'd want to. It was, you know, it's restraining, but it um, perhaps maybe does have this third use of being something because, you know, when we talk about Paul talks about the importance of love, I mean, that's kind of the, I don't know, is that the law or is it the gospel since the gospel is the message of God's love toward us? I mean, that's such a kind of a gray area when, because there is this language of law of love. I've seen it in kind of, you know, when it comes to Jesus and in Pauline discourse, there's this idea of a law of love. I don't know how that relates to the third use. I guess we should define the third use. The third use, and we're going back to Calvin, uh, is the instrument for, or, or that the law is the best instrument for us to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which we aspire and to confirm us in the understanding of it. Um, so that's, you know, I could read more. I had a longer quote pasted there, but that, you know, maybe I can revisit it. But that's the third use of the law, which I know, James, you're not a big fan of um i'm torn on it to be honest but well so, so for me I, I don't see the need necessarily for a third use of the law because mm -hmm. i feel like much of what the third use does is encapsulated in the first and second use mm -hmm. um so if we're thinking about the law as a guide mm -hmm. uh, what that what that does is like the law functions like guide rails sure mm -hmm. like or, or guard, like guardrails on a road or um i've heard the the language of like it's um you know a playpen mm -hmm. um, it's a fence inside which things are safe outside which things are not safe mm -hmm. um if we're talking about it like that 
then that's fine. But that also would be encapsulated by the first and second use because the fence tells you what's good and what's not good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't lead you necessarily toward that which is good, but it just clearly delineates between the two. Right. And that's what the civil use does is it tells you what's wrong. And it, I mean, it does stop you to a certain going there from going there. Um, Mm -hmm. But it doesn't lead you back into lawfulness. Mm -hmm. It stops you from leaving it in effect. Right. Yeah. Um, And, and the, um, the, the second use of the law, the theological or punitive use doesn't lead you back to lawfulness, but it just shows you where you have left it behind. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I mean, in that sense, I don't feel like there's a need for a clearly defined third use, but what, what I have come to um, a place of uh, thinking is that like, when you think about Luther's um, treatise, two kinds of righteousness, Mm -hmm. right? The, the righteousness that we have from God, the alien righteousness, the righteousness that is outside of us, extra nos, that is the saving righteousness, in effect. That's mm. what is bequeathed to us, imputed to us. But the second kind of righteousness is a righteousness that is for the sake of the other. And that's precisely what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8 which is what we heard this morning uh, on, what is it, the third Sunday of Epiphany? Um, whenever folks are listening to this, it's January 28th, so whatever that Sunday is. I'm on sabbatical, so I'm not looking at it. Yeah, though this will st- it'll still be the last Sunday election when by the time this is published. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so. but, 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 but the point of that is that um, when we hear that, what Paul is saying about sort of... Um, the, the preacher that I heard today um, at Trinity Upperville, Jonathan Adams, what he was saying was Paul is calling upon brother and sister Christians via this weaker brother argument to set aside some of their rights as believers for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. And it's not salvific. It's not um, condemnatory. It is a kind of third thing but I would say that that's not necessarily law so much as that is a kind of paranetic, a kind of mm-hmm. exhortation with the law already having done its work in the life of the believer, the gospel already doing its work in the life of the believer. And this paranesis is a kind of tertia quid almost. It's not quite yeah. law. It's not quite gospel uh, because it's something that that pertains to the life of the believer insofar as we are a new creation already. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I, I think the third the third use of the law is maybe not because it see it seems like the law is very act in the first now again, it's reversed for Lutheran Calvin, but you know, number the second use is the first use for Lutheran, vice versa. Right? Did I get that right? Yeah. But those first two uses, um, I feel like the law is more active it does something to you right. but in the third use at least the way um I, I i think if we go with your analogy james about like seeing the law as a guide and in, in, in the sense of guardrails and parameters yeah that really does just end up easily becoming second use 
first, depending on if you're reading Luther right. or Calvin. Um, and in in a very you know arguable way, uh, it becomes is the theological use as well, the punitive use, the mirror use. You know, again, all these these two two different uses have many names. Um, but I think if you but the way I see Calvin speaking of the law and the way I see the formula of Concord uh framers and writers speaking of the law and i can quote from form of the concord a moment is more of like not the active thing doing something but it's something to that you look upon and you see its goodness like if the regenerate christian the one you know who you know is it's it's what's their example of what godliness is right um it's it's seeing you know it's seeing the law and yes we're still we still have the old adam in us we still struggle with sin we're still simultaneously sin center saint and sinner until un, until the resurrection but it it's it's a guide in the sense of that you can see it and see why oh yes this is god's will for humanity and it's not um it doesn't put the burden of saying you have to I don't know, follow it can, well, <laughs> okay, that's, we just kind of hash that out, the the impossibility but factor, I, I, but it's still like, it's it's there, it's something to see that it is something from God, and that's God's will for us, Um, in that sense, yeah, it's, it's a guide, so, so, you know, it's, a, it's yeah. a visual, it's a it's an example, it's a demonstration, right, it's not something, it was, we're not lost to know what God wants for us, is, is you know, um, well, and that's that's where I think Calvin and Luther would be in agreement when when they're looking at the Ten Commandments, for instance. Um, Luther said before Calvin that 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 each commandment has a, a positive and negative aspect. Mm -hmm. right? Thou shalt not is obviously the negative, but there is a positive to it. So, like, thou shalt not steal. For Calvin, that means don't take anything that doesn't belong to you, but it also means protect the belongings of others. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so in that regard, you see the thou shalt not as the kind of legal, um, the, 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 the legal thing that enjoins you, but the positive aspect would be the kind of thing that I'm calling paranesis. And maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but I don't want to give too much ground. Cause I think I'm, I think I'm standing on solid ground here that, um, the positive aspect of each of the commandments is something that is not in and of itself a uh, a function of the law as as the law is understood in the first and second use. Mm -hmm. um, it is a it is a function of uh, it's a fruit of the regenerate life. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I guess, I guess I wouldn't categorize that necessarily as law, but, mm -hmm. but again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being sophistic and maybe Luther would. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it is a fruit of the regenerate life. Um, and, you know, we're, we're freed from the curse of the law, um, but it's, it's the law still, um, what is that fruit? Now, what is that uh, fruit doing? It's doing something in accord with what God originally desired for his humanity and that's seen in you know in its uh at least it's i guess it's written manifestation in the ten commandments but yes even though it's in 
negative language a lot of that i don't know so i see the um i see the connection between the the you know what the the fruits uh of of you know a life of of faith and a life in the spirit with like um what what god originally intended for people but um you know given the caveat of you know we are not under the law and mm -hmm. um we're not as in we're not ruled by the law anymore right uh, when christ rules in our heart then and you know christ and, and we don't have to fulfill the law you could argue in that sense because christ has fulfilled it for us so right That's the, 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 the thanks the thank the gratitude from that is what leads to fruits you know it's in our lives and so right and and so calvin and luther would absolutely both agree with jesus when he says in the sermon on the mount that he came to fulfill the law but i think they would view it from two different vantage points mm. and and that's that's one thing that i thought was was would be helpful to mention is that calvin tends to still buy into um to a certain extent the scholastic category of merit mm -hmm. so for calvin christ is the one who fulfills the law by living perfectly and of course dying on the cross is where salvation is achieved for us right so like it's it's not by accruing this amount of merit by living perfectly that can then be doled out to us via the treasury that's you know the pope mm. is in charge of it's not that but he's still viewing salvation in terms of merit and I don't necessarily think that Luther would view it in the same way. So whereas Calvin understands the fulfillment of the law as Christ living perfectly according to the law and under the law, mm -hmm. which is an argument that can be made from Galatians, mm -hmm. Luther, it would seem, also from Galatians, makes the argument that Christ fulfills the law by taking upon himself the curse of the law for us. Mm -hmm. So one's a positive, one's a negative. Right. And and I think um, another thing that, that occurs to me is um, I, I just finished reading earlier this year. Um, I mean, we're 28 days in, but I guess earlier this month, um, the uh, the book that came out last year um, by a guy named uh, his, his rapper name is Flame, um, but he's a mm -hmm. LCS Lutheran. He wrote a biography, autobiography slash uh theology book called extra Nose, which is about his move from being a reformed baptist to being a uh, a lutheran and so he talks a lot about what we're talking about with regard to calvin and luther because mm -hmm. he's beholden to calvin earlier in his life and one thing that he says is something that i think is deeply helpful for thinking about calvin and luther if you think about a circle, Luther will often leave the circle unfinished mm -hmm. and sort of leave things to what we would call the hidden God. Luther was okay with mystery, and he was mm -hmm. not necessarily okay with speculation into like the aseity of God, right? That mm -hmm. theological term about God's um, transcendence, God's hiddenness. He wouldn't deal mm -hmm. with speculation like the, the scholastics would. But where Luther would leave the circle open, Calvin would close it. Mm -hmm. So another great example would be like predestination. 
Mm-hmm. Luther argues in such a way that you could logically conclude, if you close the circle, that he believes in double predestination. There are a number of places in the bondage of the will, for instance, where it would seem that way. But Luther never quite gets there. So really, ultimately, he still is a single predestinarian, but Calvin just finishes the circle. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that when you build a, an entire system um, and you finish the circle with some of those thoughts, you end up standing opposed to certain aspects of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So systematic theology is great, but it's not always perfect. And that's Yeah, I, I understand. And that's what I like about, well, and we've brought it up a lot on this show. Our Part of our respect for Luther is that he's he's not a Calvin. I mean, I respect Calvin too, but Luther is, he's very practical and he's very pastoral. And every, almost any type of treatise he writes and any, um, and I mean, a lot of his writings are lectures and sermons, but anything he sets out to, to any theological topic he sets out to tackle is due to some something going on. Right. But that's to, but to be fair, um, you know, I think that's true. You know, Luther leaves the circle open, Calvin closes it. Um, but, you know, I didn't know some of the history behind this third use uh, debate. And, you know, I know we're getting low on time, but I just want to recommend one book to listeners. Um, Long Gospel, Philip Melanchthon's Debate with John Agricola by Timothy J. Winger. Uh, it was part of the text and studies in the Reformation and post-Reformation thought. Um because um, Luther was so, in many ways, concerned with the 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 legalism and the self righteousness and everything he saw, he decried in the church of his day. Um, he and his, his such his emphasis on on the need for the gospel to be heard again, because all all was being heard was law. Um, you know, not even a generation later some Christians are wondering like what, you know, um, if I'm, what is the place of the, does, what place does the law hold that, you know, there was the honest concern, like, do I, do you know, we kind of what I referenced with the antinomians earlier. And so Philip, this is when Philip Melanchthon comes in, of course, who we brought up on past episodes here and there. And he's, um, he's really the one, I think that um, we can trace this third use the law back to. For, for better or for worse, I think it's, you know, he he was in this debate with Agricola, who took um, really the antinomian stance, who, who, who tried to throw the law out altogether from any type of systematic theology or any type of, you know, understanding of, of long gospel. Um, it, it was, it, you know, gradually over time, uh, the law, he took, completely devalued it. And so Melanchthon was trying to, I think, do something good regardless of whether you agree, agree with this conclusion was to uh to to preserve the law in in our theological understanding uh, and i think luther would be there too uh, as far as preserving the law in our theological understanding as far as the uses you know right so so that's a good book recommend that for listeners that's more history we talk mainly about luther and calvin but melanchthon and and the broader lutheran tradition come you know there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. We could do a whole series on this, but yeah. But it is. It is curious though that Melanchthon ended up at a place where he believed in free will, um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the way that he viewed the law and the way that he was willing to perhaps 
be a little more accommodating of some of the reformed positions. Um, the way I've heard it described, and I think it's helpful, is that when Luther talks about the simul, he talks about us as being completely sinner and completely saint, mm -hmm. having these two conflicting identities that are within us. But when Calvin would think about it, Calvin would think about it not necessarily as being completely one mm -hmm. and completely the other, but partially one and partially the other. Yeah. So there is more agency involved in following the law in Calvin than there mm -hmm. is in Luther, I think. Right. And I think it that's why it depends on the side of the bed you wake up for Calvin. Right. I mean, if you're going to be, yeah. if you're going to be more sinner, more sainted. Now, and, and Luther, and that that does escape some people. That I guess you'd call that paradoxical way of thinking. That the way Luther frames so many things. Um, but it's really, I think, the mark of his genius in a way. Right. That's and the last thing I'll say is that part <laughs> part of the concern about Calvin, right? I mean, so Calvin tends to get a bad rap when it comes to. A number of different things and i don't think it's deserved i love calvin and as i've said on this podcast and other podcasts reading calvin made me a lutheran mm -hmm. um i i really do love and respect calvin but the problem is that many people take calvin's conclusions to a further conclusion and that's why calvin and calvinism are not the same thing mm -hmm. right so like Calvin wouldn't necessarily have bought into the five points of Calvinism at the Synod of Dort Calvin wouldn't necessarily have bought into um, Puritanism mm -hmm. as it's understood. But um, Calvin does, I think, agree with a Jonathan Edwards, for instance, when um, Edwards would say um, something to the effect of um, make haste to prove your election, like see about proving that you are elect by the way that you live. And the problem with that, again, reaches the pastoral level, mm -hmm. which is if that's one's understanding of the third use, which that's not universal mm -hmm. and, and how people understand the third use. But if that's how one understands the third use, then what that does is it undermines justification by, in effect, retrojecting those works back into a kind of justifying place, mm -hmm. not not in the sort of eternal schema, God's schema of salvation but at least in our minds right because if we are if we are trying to prove our election by what we're doing then naturally because of our fallen nature we're going to view those works as in mm -hmm. effect salvific does that make sense right. oh yeah well it's the whole flawed idea behind that hymn they'll know we are christians by our love right <laughs> no offense to people who like that hymn uh right. it's never been a favorite of mine uh by no people who like it but it's um sure you know i know lots of muslims and jews and atheists who go around caring for their neighbor too um and probably better than a lot of christians yeah right well i don't know <laughs> so it depends but you know um it, it's 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 not the if, if we're gonna start judging who's a christian by their outward actions well um you know yeah you get into trouble and, you, and again you lead that's yeah, the law drives us to despair, you know, if we're going to start, it's basically we're, we're starting to define, you know, Christians by their, how they uphold the law. And of course, so, you know, and I know that's not how, um, you know, if, if I were to, you know, I'm not, I'm still on the fence on, you know, the legitimacy of 
having something of a third use, but it would not be that if right. I, <laughs> so right. Um, yeah, James, I know you got to get going, but thanks for the conversation. It was good. Um, but we will be coming back uh, in a little later uh, for our next episode. We're going to finish our. We need to finish our third part for the um, our reviewing of the. Episcopal Fellowship for Renewal Group's uh, 95 thesis they put out for the yes. Episcopal Church. So I'm um, excited to do that. So, all right. Take care. God bless, James. Thank you, too.